Have you ever wondered how many invitations you might receive in a single day? In just a moment, I'm going to give you one of those invitations to take your Bibles. You know, invitations shape who we know, where we go, what we do, and who we become. Invitations can challenge, and they can remake us. <clears throat> they can erode and devastate. They can also heal and restore us. Being wanted, welcomed, invited, and included are some of the most mending experiences imaginable. Of course, many invitations are declined for a good number of various reasons. I remember when I was a senior in high school, I sent a graduation invitation to President Richard Nixon. Not really expecting an answer, I was rather surprised when a letter showed up from the White House with a perfectly good reason for him not attending. You know, today's scripture passage, the first part of Psalm 122, centers around a divine invitation. So if you have your Bibles or a pew Bible there in the rack in front of you or your mobile devices, let me invite you. Psalm 122, and we'll read the first five verses together. I rejoiced with those who said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet are standing in your gates, Jerusalem. Jerusalem is built like a city that is closely compacted together. That is where the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, to praise the name of the Lord according to the statue given to Israel. There stand the thrones for judgment, the thrones of the house of David. May God bless the reading of his precious word. From the very first verse, you can almost sense the excitement and the exhilaration of the psalmist. Unlike other psalms, you don't have to wait till you get down to the fifth or the tenth verse to experience the joy and that spirit-filled emotion of the writer. You can almost hear the rise in the tone when the psalmist writes about his worship experience. He says, I was glad when they said to me, let us go into the house of the Lord. You know, that one verse indicates, I think, a contagious joy that first begins with an invitation. And then as the recipient of that invitation begins to think about where he was going to go. You know, we've all received similar invitations before, haven't we? Invitations to something really special that you've experienced before and you'd love to experience it again. When we first moved to Greenville some 23 years ago and started our connection with Oakmont, there was one of the matriarchs in the church, Eleanor Mercer, who would occasionally throw a dinner party. Guests could always expect a five or six course gourmet meal and excellent conversation. It was an elaborate affair. No children allowed. Putting on the Ritz might have been a good description. Once Donna and I had experienced it, 
we can easily see why folks would want to go back again. For the most part, people just didn't turn down one of Eleanor's Denver dinner invitations. Unfortunately, that's not the case with coming to church. Over the years, I've heard the excuses that people offer for not coming. And those excuses range from the reasonable to the ridiculous. 25 years ago, Ann Landers, the newspaper columnist, shared the following. It said, in order to make it possible for everyone to attend church next week, we are planning a special no excuse Sunday. Number one, cots will be placed in the vestibule for those who say, Sunday is my only day for sleeping in. Number two, eye drops will be available for those whose eyes are tired from watching TV too late on Saturday night. Number three, we will have steel helmets for those who believe that the roof will cave in if they show up for a church service. Number four, blankets will be furnished for those who complain that the church is too cold. And of course, fans will be on, on hand for those who say that it's too hot. Number five, we will have hearing aids for the parishioners who say the pastor doesn't talk loud enough. And there will be cotton for those who say the music is too loud. Number six, scorecards will be available for those who wish to count the number of hypocrites attending. Number seven, we guarantee that some relatives will be present for those who like to go out visiting family on Sundays. Number eight, there will be takeout dinners available for those who claim they can't go to church and cook dinner too. Number nine, one section of the church will have some trees and grass for those who see God in nature, especially on the golf course. And number 10, the sanctuary will be decorated with Christmas poinsettias and Easter lilies to create a familiar environment for those who have never seen the church without them. Now, compare those excuses with perhaps some that you've personally used this historical event that first appeared in the devotional, Our Daily Bread, back in 1996. It was late winter in Chisinau, Moldova, a city near the Romanian border in what was formerly a part of the Soviet Union. Uncle Charlie Vandermeer, director of the Children's Bible Hour, was visiting the city to encourage Christian workers and to tell children about Jesus. Another cold winter Sunday didn't deter the Christians in Chisinau. They turned out in force, 1,500 strong, to worship at a church built 10 years earlier during strong communist persecution. According to Vandermeer, of all of those who attended, only 20 to 25 showed up in cars. The rest either walked in the snow, some as far as three or four miles, or took public transportation. Some had to change buses up to five times. Then they did it all over again for evening service. Amazed at the dedication of these people, Uncle Charlie wondered, and so do I, would we go to church 
if we had to do that. The Christians of Moldova, like the people David wrote about in Psalm 122, were willing to go to great lengths to worship God. Neither the faithful in Jerusalem nor the worshipers in Chisinau had it easy. They faced many hardships and obstacles, yet they went with gladness and dedication. They accepted God's invitation to worship in community. You know, spending time with other Christ followers in times of worship is certainly not the only invitation that God extends. In the book, Invitations from God, by Adele Calhoun, a spiritual director and co-pastor of a Presbyterian church, God offers us the invitation to rest, wait, pray, forgive, remember, and love, just to name a few. Those divine invitations come to us in church, in scripture, in music, in art, in nature, in failure, in disappointments, in joy, in the words of friends and even in the words of enemies. No matter how God's invitations get delivered, they let us know that we named and known. Even Jesus knew that saying yes to the invitation to be with his Father, our God, was the joy of his heart and the source of all his actions. If you think about it, invitations arrive on our doorstep every single day. In fact, our culture invites us to experience everything. The prevailing thinking is that the more invitations that come our way, the more valuable we are considered to be. We want to enjoy life, but ironically, our many yeses to invitations keep us stressed, drained, and inattentive to the divine invitations that bring real freedom and belonging. If we fail to take advantage of what the world has to offer, we think we are missing out. While it doesn't have to be an either-or situation, please don't ignore the invitations that matter most. Not all invitations are created equal. God's invitations are meant to mend, shape, anchor, and grow us into the character of Jesus. During this Advent season, a time when invitations abound, don't miss or ignore God's divine invitations. You'll always be glad when you say yes to God. Amen. This morning, we decided, looking at Psalm 122, that we were going to divide it into two sections. The first half of the psalm, I think, looks back toward Thanksgiving. The next portion of the psalm looks ahead toward Advent. We'd like to move into that section of Advent. This hymn 
that we'll put the words on the screen. We'll have a familiar tune, uh, words that speak about the fact that Jesus is soon to be born as a baby. Let me invite you. Let's stand as we sing this hymn together. Well, let me invite you to take your Bibles once more and go back to Psalm 122. We're also going to look at an additional scripture this morning, so hang on to that Bible, and you'll need it again shortly. As Michael has already shared, we have begun that transition from a time of Thanksgiving into the Advent season. How many times we hear people complain that Thanksgiving's not even here yet, and they're already talking about Christmas. But the truth is, in the church year, the way the, the year is organized, Advent is the time leading up to the birth of Christ, but it does happen right after our Thanksgiving season. So it does feel sometimes like we move just from Thanksgiving just very quickly into Christmas. But we don't want to forget that we don't get till Christmas until the 25th of the month. This is a period now called Advent. And Advent is that time of looking back toward the first Christmas, looking forward to later in the month of December when we celebrate Christ's birth. But it is also the time when we look forward into the future, looking to the time when Christ will return. So we are looking for the advent of Christ coming again. And that's what Advent season is. It's at his second coming that truly he will come to rule and to reign, and God's plan for this earth will be fulfilled as far as um, Christ coming back and bringing into the church fold, into God's kingdom, his reign. And that's what we look forward to. One of the themes of Advent is peace. And I want us to look at that thought this morning. And Psalm 122, as it begins talking about Thanksgiving in some ways, then does move into the theme of peace. So if you have your Bibles there, let me invite you to follow along as I read, beginning at verse 6. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May those who love you be secure. May there be peace within your walls and security within your citadels. For the sake of my brothers and friends, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your prosperity. So these are the words of the psalmist. And as Michael said, he had accepted the invitation to go to the holy city and was excited and thankful for the opportunity to do that. In the holy city, you can hear his joy as he remembers what it's like to be part of God's family. He reflected on the joy of being part of a nation and a city that worshiped God. And because of his great love for God and for his city, he prayed for their peace. He prayed for peace and security and prosperity, not only for the city, but if you notice, he also prayed for his friends and for his family. As I read that, I couldn't help but think, doesn't that sound like the way that we pray? How often we pray for our country and for our friends and for our family, hoping for peace in all of those places. We long for peace in the world today, just as this writer of the Psalms longed for peace for his people. The prophet Isaiah was another biblical writer who longed for peace. 
When I started researching peace, I discovered that there are more verses in the book of Isaiah about peace than there are in any other book of the Bible. In Isaiah chapter 2, we see the prophet's vision of what that future peace might look like. So again, in your Bibles, turn over four or five books till you find Isaiah, one of our major prophets, and turn to the second chapter of Isaiah. I want to read beginning with verse 1. This is what Isaiah, son of Amoz, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains. It will be raised above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many people. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. May God bless the reading and the hearing of his holy word. Isaiah's vision is good news, isn't it? It is wonderful news for all of us to think of that day in the last days when the Lord's temple will be established. The people will come before the Lord and he will teach them and judge them. I've got a feeling everybody's going to want to be in that class to hear the words of the Lord. The people will destroy their weapons at that time because there will be no need for them anymore. People will no longer fight. Nations will no longer be at war. They will all walk in the light of the Lord. Surely that is a picture of the world that we all long for. But like I said in one of my previous sermons this summer, there's good news and bad news sometimes. The good news is that the Lord's temple and rule will be established. That's the good news. But that's also the bad news, for us at least, in that the Lord's temple and rule will be established. That means in the future, future tense, that future that we don't know when it will be. It doesn't seem to be for us yet, not today. So that future is what we are longing for during the time of Advent. We are longing and hoping and waiting for that day when the Lord's temple will be established here on earth. So what do we do in the meantime? The prophets and psalmists both saw a vision of peace. And so I wonder, do we have to wait until the end of time to live in that peace? Well, the answer is twofold, yes and no. There have always been conflicts among people and among nations. In this fallen world that we live in, evil and selfishness and greed and power continue to rule in the hearts of people. And one of the results of that is war. So yes, we probably will never have worldwide peace as we think of it if we're talking about the absence of conflict between people and nations, at least not until Christ comes again. But God didn't just leave us stuck 
in that mess of a world. He provided a way for us to live and a way for us to live with peace. He sent his son Jesus to show us all a better way. So in that regard, no, we don't have to wait until the end of time to live in peace. Peace is available to us personally today, right now. In another passage in Isaiah, which would be familiar to you, Jesus is called the Prince of Peace. Prince of Peace, what does that really mean? I think that means it is Jesus who holds peace, who epitomizes what peace is. He is the fullness of peace. The Gospel of John, I think, paints a beautiful picture of how that really looks in our world. In John chapter 20, <clears throat> excuse me, this is why I brought my water. <clears throat> in John chapter 20, we see the passage where Jesus appeared to the disciples for the first time following his resurrection. If you remember, they were there in the room alone, and Jesus suddenly appeared in the room with them. And in chapter 20, verse 19, Jesus says, Peace be with you. Those are the first words he says, peace be with you. And then he repeated that two more times in verse 21. And then later when he showed up to his disciples a, a second time, when Thomas was present on the second time around, in verse 26, he once more said, peace be with you. Now that was a common Hebrew greeting. So it was not unusual for Jesus to greet the disciples that way. In our language today, it would be like us saying, hey, how you doing? Common thing we say, hey, how you doing? I think Joshua said it earlier when he was talking to the children. Good to see you today, how are you doing? It's normally what we say. But I think that Jesus is not always normal in the way that we think about things being normal. What if when Jesus said to his disciples, peace be with you, he really had something deeper in mind. Perhaps he was sharing a deeper truth with his disciples that day. In middle school, we learned how to conjugate verbs. Does anybody remember that? Anybody up here know how to, I don't even know, do they teach that anymore? I don't even know if they do. Um, conjugating verbs was one of the parts of English class that I really liked, because I, somehow I really got that. You know, and I was pretty good at conjugating those verbs. And as I was reading this passage this week, it just sort of came to me um, about the idea of the verb that is in that greeting. The greeting is, peace be with you. And so the verb would be peace. Uh, no, <laughs> peace, the, I didn't say that earlier. The verb would be be or to be. And so if you conjugate that verb in the singular, it would be this, I am, you are, he, she, or it is. Then in the plural, it would be, we are, you are, they are. Okay, it's pretty simple. We never use the word be, but yet that's the conjugation for the verb to be. I am, you are, he is. So let's think about what that sounds like if Jesus is saying that. He shows up to his disciples after his resurrection, and instead of saying, peace be with you, what if he says, peace is with you? That would be the right form of that verb. 
Peace is with you. Perhaps what Jesus is saying to his disciples is, peace is with you. I am peace. The greeting may have gone something like this. Hey, guys, I know you've been holed up in this room for several days hiding and mourning. I know you feel like your world is in turmoil, but it's not anymore because peace has just walked into the room. Here I am. I am peace. It's similar to what Henry Blackaby says in Experiencing God when he talks about truth. And he tells the similar story of the disciples in the boat who were afraid, but the truth was Jesus was truth in the back of the boat. They were not alone, and these disciples are not alone now because peace is with them now. This Advent season, we, are hope, hope, we wait hopefully and expectantly for the Prince of Peace to come, to come again and to bring himself back into our world. But we also have to learn how to live in peace now. There is a lot of fear and turmoil in today's world. The election cycle that has just ended raised the fears of many people on both sides of the political landscape. Crime shows up in our neighborhoods and we're afraid. There is always fear associated with the future because it's unknown and we don't like it when we don't know what to expect. But Jesus brings peace in the midst of all of it. In John chapter 20, a little further down in verse 33, we hear these words of Jesus. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus recognizes that in this world there will always be trouble. But we are not alone in those problems and in those troubles. We can have peace through Jesus, even when things are difficult. He's not just the Prince of Peace, he is peace. In John chapter 14, we back up in that uh, Gospel of John to an earlier chapter, and we hear words of Jesus again to his disciples. Before his own death, he shares these words with them. Peace, peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled, and do not be afraid. Now we hear those words often at funerals, thinking that that is the word of peace for those who mourn. But the truth is, those are words of peace for all of us today. Jesus is not leaving us unprepared. He is not leaving us alone. He is with us. And he tells us in this passage that we do not have to be afraid of the future. Peace is already on the job. Jesus is peace, and he is already here, and he is already in the future. So how do we then live while we wait for his return? I believe the scriptures tell us that we live as victors because ultimately Jesus wins. He has told us he has already overcome the world. And that day will truly come when he will reign with peace and love and compassion. We live as people who believe Jesus and act like we believe him. We trust him for our security. We live differently than those in this world who don't know him. 
Where they live in fear, we live in peace with hope. Where they live with hate, we live with love. Where they speak harsh words, we should speak words of compassion and gentleness. And where they live only for themselves and what they can get out of this world, we live serving others and helping those who are in need. Where the world serves money and power, we as Christians should serve the Prince of Peace. We live with hope for today and hope for the future. As followers of the Prince of Peace, we should live into this Advent season watching and waiting and hoping for that day when once again, peace will live among us. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for your great love, and we thank you that you have provided for us in the midst of a world of turmoil. You have sent peace. We thank you for the peace that we have in, in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.